Welcome back, everybody, to the Egg Aviator Podcast. Today, I am sitting down with Matt Hovness and Jim Perrin. Jim is the vice president of the NAAA and president-elect in two days. He will be the NAAA president. And Matt is the president of NRAF, and he is also a member of the North Dakota State Aerial Application Board and chairman of the Precision Ag Committee. And today, we're going to be talking about involvement in our national and state associations, what these organizations do for the agricultural aviation industry. So with that, the Egg Aviator podcast spools up now. And, of course, we can't forget to thank our sponsor, American Designs. Travis Sum over at American Designs is an egg pilot that is building parts for egg pilots, just like his uh, aluminum air tractor step extensions, mirrors, sun visor, and new, the Hellchock helmet mount. Um, I got a cool video that I'm going to share with you guys eventually about the Hellchock helmet mount system. Travis also is working on building the one-stop shop for egg aviation parts over at his website, americandesigns.com. You can check out all his cool products at americandesigns.com. That's spelled Alpha Mike Bravo, E-R-I-C-A-N, designs.com. And if you're interested in checking out the new Hellchock helmet mount, make sure to run over to hellchock.com. That's spelled Hilo Echo Lima, C-H-O-C-K.com. Thanks, Travis. And with that, let's just roll right into the discussion. First, we'll talk about Matt Hovness' background. Matt, can you share a little bit with us about uh, about yourself and how you got into the ag aviation industry? Sure, and thanks for uh, for having us here today. We're glad to talk to you. Um, I grew up in a non aviation, non farm background, so my story is a little bit unique. And so i I grew up in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, in a resort town, and I always wanted to fly airplanes, um, and I liked farming. And I couldn't see a pathway to do either. Uh, When I got uh, in high school, I started looking at colleges and things like that, what to do. And um, one of the things I did is a campus visit to the University of North Dakota, uh, the the flight school there. And on the way up there, there was a college called the University of Minnesota Crookston, which a lot of you are familiar with, that had an ag aviation program. And I was actually being recruited to play football at uh, Crookston, and I really had written it off because I wanted to fly airplanes. And when I was talking to the coach, he said, well, we have an aviation program. Why don't you go talk to the guys at the airport? And so uh, they sent me out to the airport. And I met this small little guy called Larry Leak, and he was the head of the program. And it really, it really kind of took hold that day. And that's when, I, that's when I decided I wanted to do this. And so I went to school up there and, and uh, got my got my flight training. Uh, I loaded for in the summers while I was going to college up there. Um, and then when I graduated from college, there were no jobs. I wasn't able to find a job. So I worked as a flight instructor for about a year in Brainerd, Minnesota. And that was during 9-11. And then I actually did my first, uh, first paying job in 150 horse Pawnee in 2002. 
And I worked for that company for five years, and then I've been up back in North Dakota ever since. And now, now I run my own business, and I fly a uh, 400 air tractor. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll go ahead and hand it over to Jim. Jim, can you go ahead and share a little bit about your background and, and how you got into the AG aviation business? Sure. Um, I graduated high school in 1986. I grew up on a small dairy farm in Wisconsin. The ag economy, and particularly dairy, were about as bad as they could get at that time and uh, didn't really see a future in milking a small herd of cows. So I joined the Army and uh, joined the Army as a helicopter crew chief and immediately became a, or as a, a helicopter mechanic, and I immediately became a helicopter crew chief just because of circumstances, which meant I got to fly around in the back seat. I'd always had a, a, a passion for aviation, at least a strong interest in aviation. And almost immediately, I kind of realized that I wanted to fly for a living. So some twists and turns. Four years later, I got out of the Army and uh, started into an aviation school in Colorado. While I was at the aviation school, uh, it was really my first exposure to ag aviation. There was a, a operator on the field there with a couple of ag cats. And uh, I knew instantly that it melded the two two passions that I had, both for agriculture and for aviation. So that was, it was a foregone conclusion at that point that I wanted to fly ag. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into it. And I went to Harold Miller's school in Illinois and, and got signed off. And he actually hired me as a 253-hour pilot um, to fly for him that first summer, which was 1992. And then I've been, been doing this ever since. Oh, awesome. Matt's got his own business. So does Jim. Uh, Matt, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Tell us a little bit about um, getting into the position of an operator and, and how you started your business. Yeah, and so it it, it is unique for me. Uh, I was a hired pilot for about 15 years uh, before I became an operator, actually a little more than that. And um, I I then, so I've been an operator now. This is my third season as an operator. And I always wanted to be an operator. That was always my goal. That's how I felt like I was wired. And the opportunity just hadn't presented itself, and there was a lot of moving parts and pieces to that. I, I approached everywhere I worked like I was an operator. So that one of the things that, that did is that kind of set me aside from other pilots, and actually I think it made me a better ag pilot. Um, not that I was any better than anybody that I worked with, but I was a little bit different because I tried to look at it from an operator standpoint, which is much different than a hired pilot standpoint. A lot of moving parts that you don't think about. And so um, three years ago, I, uh, a little over three years ago, I made the decision to, to uh, become my own operator. I didn't have a great plan. Um, I didn't have a great sense of where my work was going to go or come from. And uh, I just did it. And I couldn't have done it without the experience I had gained as a hired pilot. And I also couldn't have done it without a lot of the people that I've gotten to know helping me and coaching me. And, and uh, there's a lot of people that that did things for me that first year and are still doing things for me um, that has allowed me to become an operator. Awesome. Thank you. So, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your operation and how you got that started? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually on my technically fourth operation. I started out as a hired pilot, worked for, for a couple of different operations. Uh, I personally don't place any more importance on an operator versus a pilot. I think we've, we've 
we're all doing what we want to do for the decisions and reasons that we make. I don't think that there's any more value to being an operator versus being a pilot, but it just worked out for me to become an operator. Um, initially, I got a call in uh, the winter of 94, 95, and I was asked if I wanted to buy an operation in Illinois. Harold Miller had called me, the fellow that owned the school that I, I went to. And uh, so I went down. My wife and I had decided that we just wanted to fly the operation for a year to see if we liked it before we purchased it. We uh, we did like it, so we purchased it. Uh, ended up buying two more operations while we were there. So at one time, we we had three operations that were kind of folded into two operations. But we were running two, two separate operations at, at that time. I had a... A local fellow that wanted to buy me out, um, so I ended up selling one operation to him, another operation to a, another friend of mine, and it just happened to work out that the uh, operation that I originally had flown for up in Wisconsin came up for sale, so I essentially just reinvested and bought another uh, business in Wisconsin with a partner this time. It's a vegetable business, so it gave me some stability. My Illinois businesses were at a time when BT corn was coming on real strong, and We'd lost a lot of work, mm-hmm. so the opportunity to get into vegetable country in Wisconsin was was a pretty welcome opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it just sometimes the stars just align, and then that's how that worked out. And that's why I am an operator in Wisconsin today. Excellent. So I take it, Jim, you've probably been involved in quite in like state operations and associations and stuff like that prior to. Yes. Or? Yep. I've been uh, a member of both Illinois and Wisconsin, as well as a couple other states off and on. If I do work in a state, I, I feel it's right to be a, a member of that state association. I'm licensed in seven states. I'm currently only a member in two of those states, but I'm going to join my membership in another state here this, this January at one of the meetings. The state associations is the grassroots level. That's where the, the issues with our local regulators and legislators are dealt with first. Mm-hmm. Um, if it wasn't for your state association, your representation – within a state or regional uh, associations uh, that gives you some credibility with the local legislators as well as the local regulators. Mm-hmm. The regulators are probably the more important factor of the two typically, yep. but even on the legislation side, there's a lot of work that needs to be done that's specific to our industries. And that has to happen. It has to start at the state level, mm-hmm. state or regional level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that, especially, um, you know, Matt and I participate in the tri-state, which is North, South Dakota, and Minnesota, and there's there's a lot of benefits to the fact that you can just go there. Not only do you get to experience the the past program where everyone's talking about safety, but not only that, our state association has got it set up so that we can go get our license, our applicators' licenses renewed, and everything like that. Much more simple than just going to take the test and everything. So, um, Matt, would you like to share anything about? state associations yeah so i i was in i was in a state associate on a state association board my as a first year ag pilot when i was down in nebraska uh the gentleman that that taught me how to spray thought it was very important he it was very clear he made it very clear that it's important to be um to serve the state that you work in and we all have different talents and abilities and that means different things for everybody but it they, they got me on the board, and I was on the Nebraska board for um, the whole time I was lived down there, and, and I had positions, and I, I was the legislative director for a couple of years. And, and uh, so I was down there, and then uh, when I got back to North Dakota, um, after a couple of years, I 
got involved there and I was the president of the North Dakota Association and and I think for two years, 2012, I believe it was. And I, I'm just going to echo what Jim says. is it, it All the stuff that happens nationally at the federal level starts at the state level. The Met Tower fight was done on both fronts, and it took both fronts to get Met Towers marked. Mm-hmm. You know, in North Dakota, they happened to, we happened to have Met Tower leg- legislation, Idaho, South Dakota, and had those states not done that work, California... Um, the federal fight would have been much more difficult. But when the Fed, when the feds see all these states saying, "Oh, this is happening," um, then it's easier for the national level to work. And that, for me, has just transferred into now working in the, at the NAAA and NARF on the national stuff. Um, still involved in the state stuff, and I think most of us that are involved will continue to be involved in the state stuff for. Years and years and years. Mm-hmm. So you you provided a great example there of something that the the state association, along with the federal, did to prevent something from happening to some to prevent some overregulation in the industry. So do either of you have any other great examples um, that you've seen or heard about throughout the years that state associations state associations have done to prevent any overregulation or or things that would have impeded um, operators to to do their business. Yeah, I could think of a couple right off the top of my head. I think Minnesota's done a phenomenal job with tower marking. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done a uh, you know the Minnesota uh, Ag Aviation Association has has was probably the first to fight that good fight and and did it successfully. Uh, I think that uh, Idaho, for instance, the state association uh, representative, and I think you've, you've inter- interviewed him, mm-hmm. he's gotten some pretty onerous regulation, state regulation taken care of in the state of Idaho uh, regarding wind speed for spring, mm-hmm. um, sales tax on ag airplanes in that state. That was all done at the legislative level. Uh, those are just two... Two people that I can think of right off the top of my head that have done some pretty amazing things as far as getting positive moves for the aviation industry. Mm-hmm. And and one thing I'll add to that is there's a lot of things that you never hear about. If you're just a member, you don't know. If you're not at the table with some of those things. Um, that happens both nationally at the NAAA level and on the state level. In North Dakota, for example, it was about 10 years ago, um, there was a push from the regulators, not from the legislators, but from the regulators, to get very heavy-handed with fines and the revocations of a pesticide applicator's license in North Dakota. And we got a hold of that, and we sat down with the regulators, a few of us on the board, and we talked to them, and we come up with some solutions. And so basically what we were able to do was say, hey, instead of fining people, maybe, or revoking their certificate, maybe you could just ask them to attend a pass program if they haven't, and some things like that. And we were able to just kind of get that stopped and shut down. And I would say the average member probably never even knew that those conversations happened if they're not involved. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of situations like that, I feel like, are going to continue to be a problem. Um, I was able to go and travel on the road for the first time in my career this year and being in Illinois, um, in Nebraska, and, and flying over Iowa, you know, there's a lot of 
there's some problems other states face that we don't face in North Dakota. You know, I really do not have to worry about people out in the countryside, but we're we're really seeing now that the I'll call it this, the rural area and the frontier has been conquered. We've got a lot of city people that are starting to move into rural areas and a lot of these things, especially pertaining to um, pesticides and airplanes flying low over houses. I mean, I keep this, it seems like the stories are getting more frequent and I'm sure um, just like we've heard a few folks say in the past program, the squeaky wheel gets the grease and I'm sure over time, a lot of these, a lot of these fights are probably going to continue to happen. Jim, how long have you been involved with the the NAAA now? I've been a member of the NAAA. Uh, One of my mentors asked me Mm -hmm. very politely, um, urged me, I guess would be a a good way to put it, um, to join by a lifetime membership to the NAAA. Mm -hmm. I bought that lifetime membership. It would have been in 1996. Um, That's paid back. That was a good investment. Yeah. Uh, He had... He was helping me. I, I was running a 450 Ag Cat, and my very first year in business, we had a bug run, and, and I was running 13 airplanes that summer. I was really in over my head. And at one point, I had dispatched him, but somehow that didn't end up on the record uh, that day. So I figured out later on that night that I still owed him for a job, and I just happened to mention to him, hey, I owe you for a job that you did yesterday that I didn't didn't catch until last night after dark. And... Uh, he just said, you know what, don't pay me for that job. I want you to use that money to get yourself a membership to the NAAA. And that was a, a seminal moment in my life, as it turns out, because uh, that uh, membership has been way more important to me than I ever would have guessed. Mm-hmm. My closest friends, the people that I actually view almost as family, uh, in some cases closer than family, are are members of the NAAA that I've become close with over the years. Um for instance, like like Matt or or several others, it's it's really almost a family atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got I, I became a member in '96, but I really didn't know what happened at the national level until probably oh I don't know nine or ten years ago. Um, you know, it's like anybody else. When you're a member of an association, you're 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 glad to be a member of it. You've got friends. You go to the conventions. You socialize. You network. You learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most importantly, the stuff that happens at the board level that a, a member may not be aware of, if they're not, you know, if somebody's not telling them what's going on, mm-hmm. is some of the most important work being done for, for all of us, not just the members. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could go on and on and on, but the reality of it is, I realized on my very first exposure to one of the board meetings, which I wasn't on the board, I just was exposed to the board meeting through a leadership course, I was just amazed at what was being done. And once I was uh, elected to serve as Wisconsin's director and serve on the board, I have to be honest with you, it just blew my mind how much heavy lifting, how much hard work, how many volunteer hours went into it, and how much success we were having. Um, And now that I'm you know, have become heavily involved in it, I can honestly say I don't believe we'd be in business today if it weren't for the National Association. Awesome. Matt, you got anything you'd like to add to that? No, well, yeah, I do. Uh, I I think one of the things that um, I'll just echo again is there's so much that we don't realize it's going on until you're at the table. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that uh, Jim's story is very similar to mine. 
went to leadership training in 2006. Um, I've only been on the board for five years now. Um, but the, the, uh, the things that this association does is, is just, it's, it's critical. And everybody, every single aerial applicator, I guarantee you, has benefited significantly from something the National Association has done. And uh, the thing I, I would like to make sure everybody understands is that we are one of the most open organizations. Anybody can come to just about any meeting and talk, and there's some rules about making motions and voting and stuff. But uh, we are one of the most welcoming organizations. I've, uh, you know, I, I don't even know when they, you know, some of the other organizations I belong to, I don't even know when their meetings are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this is a very open open association Mm -hmm. yeah and we should all appreciate that transparency um so first off congratulations on becoming president of the the NAAA and I just want to say both to you that I do appreciate the service that you guys have put forth in all these organizations because obviously I've only been around this business for about five six years now but but like you both said I mean it's great that I still have the opportunity to pursue this career and do what I love to do too so thank you both for that but so Jim, now that you're going to be becoming president of the NAAA now, what, what are some of the things that you would like to address as president? Well, really my, my biggest hot-button issue is there is this, this, I'll call it a rift, between pilots and operators. I didn't really realize that it existed. I've got friends that are operators. I've got friends that are pilots. I've got a tremendous amount of respect for, for their abilities and, and their decisions, frankly. The rift actually kind of showed itself because of Facebook. Mm-hmm. I saw some some comments on Facebook that initially I was really taken aback by. I was really stunned by that um, and frankly offended. And I feel bad for any pilot or any operator that's, that's in that position where they have that adversarial relationship. It, it's just really unfortunate because the truth of it is is that we should all be working together. There's, you know, so many similar headaches that we share. Sure, the operator may have some different headaches. Every person has their own headaches, mm-hmm. uh, own, own trials and tribulations. But uh, through these Facebook comments, I realized that not everybody really truly realizes uh, some of the things that happen. Um, some of the comments that were made were so so negative between the two um, some of the comments made were so negative towards the National Association. And frankly, uh, it became painfully ad- evident to me that people simply weren't aware of what's going on at the national level. Mm-hmm. The, the things that are being done for all of us um, really uh, need to be addressed. I don't understand. Um, I shouldn't say it like that. That's not, not what I mean. I I don't know exactly how to uh, get the message out. Uh, I think podcasts like like yours are phenomenal because we can start to get the word out about uh, what's going on uh, at the, the national level. Some of the pilots really felt like they didn't have a voice in the NAAA. They thought the NAAA simply was a convention. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, their job is in jeopardy without the NAAA. Um, the things that happen with the EPA, with the Department of Ag, with the FAA, with the NTSB, with, with you know, you name the uh, government agency, uh, the NAAA is, is there 
dealing with it and, and frankly, quite successfully. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'd really like to accomplish is getting pilots and operators to attend some of the board meetings, to attend some of the committee committee meetings. It's open to anyone. Mm -hmm. Come on in, sit down in the ones you're interested in, sit down in the ones that you're strong in, maybe some things you have some knowledge in, and uh, turn that knowledge uh, into something positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's perfect. And and I really appreciate that we got to meet and talk today because, you know, moving forward, I'd, I, I'm personally one of those people that's kind of uninformed, I'll say. And it's and I'm probably a lot like some of those pilots. I, I don't have any negative feelings towards the NAAA, but personally, I haven't, I haven't always been in the know about what's always going on. And it's probably because I haven't really, I haven't been seeking out that information. It wasn't really until Riley Farter, um, who's he's a board member, I think now, correct? And you know, Riley got involved heavily in the state and uh, and at the national level, and just talking to him about it, and and I really got to find out more about what you guys are doing and and what the association does for the industry. So we absolutely can you know moving forward use this platform as a way to make sure that everybody in the industry knows what's happening um, and stays up to date. So. Again, I appreciate that. So um, talking about membership a little bit, uh, Jim, do you want to, um, can you give me your take on on membership right now and how you think we can change that moving forward in the future? Yeah, I, I really believe that exposure to the board committee meetings is how we change uh, membership right now. Mm-hmm. It's a, a national statistic on any association out there that uh, people aren't joining, people aren't being involved. Uh doesn't matter whether you're talking about the NRA or, or the NAAA or, you know, you pick, pick your, your association. Membership is down. Things like American Legion posts are closing. People aren't joining those types of things right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I really believe that if people are exposed to what happens in these committee meetings, not only will they understand the value of being a member, and, and I, can, I can give some great examples of why someone should be a member, um, but I think they'd be excited about being a member. I don't think it's something you have to ask somebody to do if they're excited about what's going on in those in those committees. And and Matt, maybe you'd like to touch a little bit on some of the work that 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 Damon's been doing to give a great example of what membership gets us. Yeah, and and so uh, I would like to just back up a second too and and say that uh, touch on the hired pilot operator since I've been on both sides of that. Um, I got on the interplay board as a hired pilot. I got assigned to the committees as a hired pilot. I was the president of the North Dakota Association as a hired pilot. So um, the, the the way you get involved as a hired pilot is to show up. Mm-hmm. And and I guarantee you, if you're willing, mm-hmm. they will they will find a home for you. Um, and and we do need hired pilots. We need that voice in our meetings. We need people's perspectives because it is different. When, when you're an operator, you look at things differently than you do as a hired pilot. Some, some things, not, not all. Mm. And we need both, both sides of that. And, and uh, you know, Riley Farter is, has been a hired pilot, and he's very involved in the board, and um, he's kind of a quasi-operator now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what his official title is, but, uh, you, you know, and, and, and so there is that, that room. Or, uh, there is representation there, um, but no, I I would going back to what what Jim just brought up with with Damon Reby, 
And it's not just him. There are others that have helped him a lot. Um, he is on the uh, Pesticide Program and Dialogue Committee. From uh, It's a sub... It's a, I don't know if we call it a steering committee for the EPA, and it's basically industry that is advising the EPA on different uh, different things, and and it has been critical to have him there um, in the conversation. When we start talking about drift, when we talk about drones, when we talk about registering products, um, Damon's really good with drift models, and and he's really good uh, with with being the voice of the NAAA at that at that platform. And between him and Dr. Uh, Scott Bredhauer, who is the, um, what is his official title? I, have no I would idea. say something like the director of NAREF, but he wears a lot of hats in the NAAA and NAREF. You know, between the two of them, they're able to really talk the language of the scientists. And, you know, a lot of the activists don't have a, a platform of data. They just have a platform. And when you can show the data, the NAAA has been very, very successful just simply showing data. Um, for example, if you noticed, a lot of labels got pushed up to a 15-mile-an-hour wind mm-hmm. when they re-registered. Before, they were always 10. That's because of the work that, that Damon and the PPDC group has been, been doing. Um, and, you know, we, we what happens in these organizations is, is these people find homes where their talents lie and they get to go with it and that's one example that's where damon's that's that's where he's really talented and uh, he's done a lot of work for us with that and and then i mean you could go on and on and on about the different things that have been done and what people are doing and uh, every single ag pilot is spraying a product that has been re-registered and commented on by the NAAA. every single one whether you're a member or not Mm -hmm. and uh, it's pretty critical that we keep these chemistries because if we don't have anything to spray, it makes us pretty irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And and to back up what Matt's saying, we're commenting on roughly seventy different registered or seventy different active ingredients a year right now. Wow! And many times the registrant is willing to trade off aerial application in order to keep a label for something else. Mm-hmm. And it's really only the comments of the NAAA that are keeping. Uh, you know, when we're proving the science through the drift modeling and that kind of thing, to keeping these labels for aerial application, mm-hmm. um, and that's why it's 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 disappointing when people don't support the the association back. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure other associations are dealing with the same thing across the board as as people no longer join those kinds of kinds of groups. But we do need the young people. We need the the fresh perspectives. And like Matt said, it. It's operators or pilots. Both are welcome. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads me into a little bit of a segue here. One of the things I wanted to talk about was um, how we get a younger generation involved right now. So if, Matt, you can go ahead and start since we talked about this, but but how, how did you really start getting involved and how do you see somebody who's my age and at my experience level in the industry getting into and getting involved with all these all these things. Yeah, and, and so going back to my story, I was pretty much told that I was going to A, be a member, and I was going to B, be active. Mm-hmm. And it, not knowing what that meant, I didn't know what that meant. Nobody really knew what that knows what that means until they do it. Um, it starts with being a member, and it starts with showing up. Um, and 
and there are tons of jobs that you can do. I mean, you if if we had to have volunteers take tickets at the door for the breakfast, if that's your if that's your starting place, that's your starting place. Um, and if, if that's all you ever do, we'll be thankful for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say show up and tell people that you're willing to help, and it will f- just just take control of things. I mean, we're every ag pilot I know at some point gets in an airplane and just takes control of it, right? That's what we're wired to do. Well, it's no different. Find something to do and just take control of it. And and, um, and whether that be at the state level, the national level, it doesn't matter. We, we need it all. And and where are you interested? Um, for me, I'm very interested in the safety aspect of it. That That is my, that is one of the things that keeps me going is I, I would love to make this a safer industry. And, uh, I'd, I'd love to not have to hear accident reports and, and worry about my friends. And uh, so that's where, that's how I ended up on NARAF. That's how I ended up doing the PASS program. And that's that's where my niche has kind of taken me uh, to this point. What's really interesting along the way, and I'll echo what Jim said, is my friends, my circle of people now, is the people I do things with in the NAAA. And they're not all board members. There are people that help with subcommittees. I mean, Jim and I were on a subcommittee. We we did a call every week for eight or nine weeks last year, and you get to be friends with these people and you hear about their family. And now, you know, we were just talking the other day about how uh, some of us have to get our families together and come down to Savannah without the the, the convention because this is our this is our people, mm-hmm. and that's what kind of keeps it. That's why we keep doing it. It's because it is work. But the rewards of the people—it's—it's—it's—it's out of the park, and and that has not only helped me personally, but it will help you professionally. I guarantee you that if you get involved, it will help you professionally. So Matt just led into what I was thinking, and that is—is you know we're we're talking right now because of the the perspective of the NAAA convention and and membership. So that's kind of seems to be the focus of what I keep saying, but. The reality of it is, is it's not just membership; it's professionalism. Mm-hmm. You, if you're involved in the government relations committee, or you're involved in the research and tech committee, or any of the committees, when you get in the airplane, the conversations that you had in Washington D.C. with a legislator will roll through your mind. Mm-hmm. You will fly the airplane in a manner that's. Safer, you will fly the airplane in a manner that's uh, just simply more pro- professional. Mm-hmm. You're a, you're a little more aware of what people think of us, mm-hmm. and it's just not about making the cool turn or zooming across the field low. There's so much more to that, and and that professionalism, for me personally, really became highlighted because of my exposure to what's going on at the committee meetings. Mm-hmm. I I can tell you. Just to give you an example, um, I I like to think I was pretty up to speed with aircraft setup and nozzles and the drift models and the, and the nozzle models and stuff like that. And with my involvement with PASS, because I have to, because we get, Jim's a PASS presenter as well, we get trained on the PASS program. Um, and uh, we, uh, I have learned things that I have applied in my business that I would have never known made me a better operator um 
and each that that happens everywhere and it's not it's it's not a big it's not a big thing but just being involved you're going to get the email that you might read and you never know which one you're going to read that's going to make you a better pilot or a better operator mm-hmm. you, you never know what what it is but sooner or later in in 5 or 10 years and go oh yeah you look at all this these little snippets of information or these relationships i've made um is it you will be better at what you do and safer mm-hmm. and probably more productive and far more knowledgeable yeah. yeah you'll know the backstory behind some of the decisions made at the at the regulatory level mm-hmm. um you'll you'll know what's coming down the pike with worker protection standards long before we actually see the final you know revision of the worker protection standards those things are all discussed you'll know some of the hazards and some of the reasons why the EPA or OSHA are looking at certain issues there's just no question about it your professionalism level goes up when you're when you're exposed to those things and that's why I'd really like to see young pilots attend some of those committee meetings whether they're directors or not I've, I've said this several times recently our springboard meeting is typically in Washington DC Alexandria, Virginia, actually, but just outside Washington, D.C. When we go out there, make a family vacation out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, for married people, take the kids, go see, or, you know, take, take your family out, go see it. Uh, for a younger person, take your girlfriend or boyfriend and go out there and, and see the things like the, the, you know, the Lincoln Memorial, Arlington National Cemetery. There's so much to do out there that you could incorporate it into a, a family vacation or a, a vacation of some sort and, and and go attend those committee meetings and go enjoy that city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the the board meetings are only two days. Um, it's a Friday and a Saturday. The NAREF meetings do start on Thursday, um, but it it is pretty easy to just pop in and see one if you wanted to do that as part of a vacation. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about NREF a little bit? Yeah. So so NAREF is the. Um, it's kind of a sister organization of the NAAA. It's a nonprofit, um, and it is where the, the it stands for uh, Ag Aviation. No, I can't think of it. Research and Education. Ag Aviation Research and Education Foundation, and that is the the group. Uh, we have our own board, which is made up of NAAA members, and um, that is what oversees the PASS program, Operation Safe, and any of the educational programs coming out of the NAAA. And um, it's it's where a lot of decisions get made. Like we, Jim and I were just in a meeting we the other day. We pretty much figured out what we're going to do for next year's PASS program. Not that we don't change things if we need to, but um, it's the nuts and bolts of that. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of NAREF is to promote safety and education. Mm-hmm. And so, and the reason it's a separate entity, it allows us to, to take donations and things differently. Um, and it's much easier to do that. It's very common to have a, a, a nonprofit associated with it. Um, I've been on the board of NAREF for this, I'll just be starting my third year. And I was the president this year and uh we'll see we have a meeting in two days to see if i'm going to be the president again next year usually it's a two-year two-year gig Mm -hmm. and it's been it's been an interesting it's been fun for me because it it, i enjoy 
the PASS program. I enjoyed giving the PASS programs. I enjoyed being involved with the development of the content. Um, there is a lot that goes into that program. It is a big undertaking to do a four-hour program for ag pilots. And we're the only training program that gets updated every year. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you go to the, the dishwasher repair training, they regurgitate a lot of the same thing. They, they, they use old stuff. We, we do a brand-new program every year. So it's a lot of fun. And, and some of the cool stuff we're doing with Operation Safe and we're talking about um, that, that could be coming down the pipe, it's just fun to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said earlier, that this is kind of where my passion is, is in the safety side of things and trying to make things, make things safer. Mm-hmm. And for the, the pilots, the, the Compass Rose program, for instance, has an awful lot to, to offer. And or at least I hope it does. Um, the uh, maybe not my table all the time, but the uh, and and that is also generated out of NAREF. Awesome. So there's one I didn't bring this up earlier, but I thought about it. There's one particular thing that has to do with safety. I remember the first Minnesota board meeting I attended, like back in 2019. I believe you were there, and um, Andrew Moore, right? Mm-hmm. Andrew was there. You guys were talking about, um, we're staying on the safety topic here, you guys were talking about some potential regulation to Part 137 that we may be facing in the future if we don't get some issues sorted out. Would you care to share a little bit of information about that? Is it still an ongoing issue? Or Yeah, and, and I can tell you that this will be an ongoing issue probably indefinitely. Um, there... One of the good things about the FAA and our relationship with them is we, we, they're at our table. We talk to them. We have representatives with them. And they don't know what to do with our industry. They have regs that were written you know, 40 years ago, and there's been a few little tweaks and stuff like that, but they don't know how, how to regulate us similar to how they would regulate, say, a Part 135 operation or a 121 operation. And... That's good because they've kind of left us alone. We don't have a part 137. I mean, we complain about the FAA. We are not very restricted by the FAA. If you look at what every other country around has to do, we we are very fortunate to have the rules that we do from part 137. That being said, the FAA, the people inside the FAA do want to reduce our accidents. They've, they've, They've said that. They've said, we want to reduce your fatalities, and they don't know how to do it. The only thing they have are templates from 121, 135. And so they, that's what they, those are the tools they have in their toolbox. I had lunch. Um, I don't know if you were there, Jim, but Damon Reby and I had lunch with an FAA gentleman a couple years ago, and very nice guy. We have a great relationship with, with him. And we were talking about this, and he said, I asked him, I said, if it were up to you, what would we do? What would you do as an FAA guy to make, to make safer? And he's, without even thinking about it, he said, I would make you guys take an annual check ride, and I would instill duty, restric- duty time restrictions. I mean, he, I mean, that was, and that has hung over us for a long time, and it will continue to hang over us. And the reason we can we can not have that is because we are doing our own thing. We're doing the past program. 
we have reduced accidents. I mean, the the number of accidents actually is quite low. I mean, what we're I think fifty four this year. Fifty four accidents, and I think our low was forty nine a couple of years ago. So the number of accidents we're having is is lower. What's happening though is we're not making enough movement on the fatalities. In fact, um, they, this year they they were up at twelve, and uh, that's the number we need to work on. And and so when we talk to the FAA, we have to have a plan to, okay, you want duty restrictions. Well, that's not really going to work for us, but, hey, let, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we were looking at is, is um, and Jim Perrin actually started this a couple of years ago, is, is uh, the NTSB did a, did a uh, special investigation of our industry and made a report, and one of the things they said is our knowledge and skills test is weak. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. Some people would disagree with that. And we started working on that committee. And what that turned into is we, we satisfied some of the requirements, and, and I think we've got that handled from the NTSB. But we need to come up with some different ways to train and some different ways to think about being a better ag pilot. And so we are now starting to work on uh, part of that plan that you, you saw a presentation that I gave is online training content and having different tools available for operators and pilots. And that we probably will have that up and running this year. We'll probably have a, a, a controlled flight into train training module online available for people to take, for members to take mm-hmm. this year. And that's going to be part of it. And I think moving forward, there will be multiple things online that you can go. You can. It'll probably be similar to uh, if you've ever had a, guys that have had a CFI refresher, you have to sit there, you have to watch it, you have to take a test that indicates that you, it's not a hard test, but we have to know that you watched it, and then there will be some credit given to you for that. And the thought process is that if we do some of these things, we're going to just continue to move the bar towards more professional, safer pilots. And um, we have to get that, that fatality number to move. I mean, that's got to come down. I don't know, Jim, did you, you've been involved in that process quite a bit. Did you have more to add? Yep, I do. Andy, you asked me earlier what my agenda, my personal agenda is as president. And obviously one is membership and we've discussed that. And I've got some ideas that we're, we're currently kicking around that I think will help. Um, but the other one is uh, accreditation. So none of us want more regulation. None of us want to have to deal with a rule that's written by somebody that doesn't know our job. So what I would like to see us do, and, and now might be a good time to, to work towards that, is a tiered accreditation through the National Ag Aviation Association. And uh, as you complete these online tests or, or different, you know, simply by being a member and taking your airplane across the string, do the pattern testing, you know, might get you to a certain tier level. But as you complete these tier levels... We could take that information, and it would be. I personally think it's a win-win. One, um, it helps to retrain, recurrent train our current uh, pilots. It would it would obviously help a new pilot coming on board be a little bit more well trained. Mm-hmm. Um, so, from a training standpoint, you know, there's there's one huge positive, particularly, you know, recurrency training. Second. I think that with the insurance rates where they're at now, 
you know, it gives a pilot or an operator an opportunity to sell themselves to the insurance companies to secure better rates in these these ever increasing expensive times. Yeah. If I could add to that, Jim, you know, a lot of the, the insurance underwriters get beat up a lot. And um, when PASS first started, there was a pretty significant discount given for attending PASS. And the reason for that is because the insurance companies saw value and, and you know, they are assessing risk. They think if somebody goes to PASS, they're less of a risk than somebody that doesn't. Well, that has changed a little bit. Um, that and it, it, There's a lot of reasons for competitive markets and stuff like that, but um, that that discount is not what it used to be. Well, and so a lot of people are saying, well, insurance companies need to give us breaks. They need to give us breaks. Well, insurance is actually a really easy business. It's all math. They need to pay. They need to take in more than they pay out. And if they're paying out more, they need to take in more. We need to make them pay out less. Mm-hmm. And that that will that is the easiest way to solve the insurance issue is to stop having big claims. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways we can do that is become safer and more more proficient. And um, I'll take this opportunity to say that, I mean, it, to me it starts with getting a good BFR. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot of pushback, not just in our industry, but in the aviation industry as well. I I just did a BFR with an old, actually it was my old student. It was kind of fun. To, he got his chance to, to beat me up a little bit. And uh, we made it a... A, a learning event for both of us, and I think I became a better pilot, or at least I remembered a few things. That I mean, he pulled my engine about four times on the on the the deal. So you, you know what what uh, what happened there? I hadn't done in a while, and we need to do that. Just because we're flying all the time doesn't mean we're as good as we have always been. Mm-hmm. And I want to make one point just to kind of drive the importance of of what you guys are doing and talking about in. Right now, I've been talking a lot on my podcast, mainly about things that pertain to people trying to get into the industry. And right now, obviously, we face this big challenge of we're short on pilots just like everybody else is right now. And we do not really have the luxury of having a process to get pilots in, right? And and operators, you know, I talked to a couple operators yesterday and talked about the, the operator's challenge of starting pilots. You know, we... In not very long, we aren't going to have many piston airplanes. There, there already isn't a lot, and they're getting more expensive. A lot of operations don't have the facilities to even accommodate piston aircraft anymore. So we're we're having to start people in these turbine aircraft, and, and my operator that I'm working for is working on that right now. And um, I'll just share a little bit about the conversation he had with our insurance agent, but we, we discussed this gentleman. He's got a lot of tailwheel time. He went to an ag school, um, driven individual, and he's going to be successful. But, you know, in that conversation with the insurance agent, it almost was like it doesn't really matter because we've had so much bent metal that we just aren't taking risks anymore. So we're, we're really hurting ourselves. The way the, the current trajectory is not helping to alleviate that situation, I guess, from my point of view, which is only going to continue to get worse. But, Well, and Andy, that goes back to the what I was talking about earlier. There's, Matt and I spent a tremendous amount of time, Matt and I, Joe Kopic, George Parker, spent a tremendous amount of time. Uh, Rod Thomas helped with some of the, the early phase stuff on the helicopter. We spent a tremendous amount of time writing a new Part 137 ACS, Airman Certification Standard. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is roughly 100 pages. 
It includes helicopters and UAVs, UAS. So the fi- let's just take the fixed wing, for example. The, the fixed wing portion of that ACS would be roughly 60, I'm just going to pull a number, 60 pages, 70 pages long. This goes back to what you just brought up with the insurance company. If, if you're starting out a new pilot and you say, listen, this is the ACS we're going to use to train this new pilot, it's, in that case, it, it isn't about getting a break, like Matt said. But in that case, it gives you the opportunity to sell yourself to that, you know, the operator, to sell himself to that insurance company, how they're going to bring in a new pilot. Step by step, the pilot's going to do each one of these tasks on this ACS and know the material. It gives you an opportunity as an operator to sell yourself to the insurance company to get where you can start that pilot. Maybe the insurance company that they're currently, uh, that's currently writing their business just doesn't want the risk at all, mm-hmm. so therefore doesn't want their business. Well, now if you give that insurance company a, a tool to see how you're going to train your new pilot, suddenly maybe they, they'll see that there's not as much risk in that, and you can stay with that long-term business relationship you've had with that insurance company. I talked to Matt yesterday a little bit. Well, our original conversation last spring when we were talking about this fatalities and accidents, Do you guys? would you guys care to address or talk about you know what what do you see um what do you see causing a lot of the current fatalities and accidents we're having right now and you know what what do you guys think we should do to be addressing that as an industry and and as an association too sure and and we're we're asking that's that's one of the constant questions that we're talking we talked about that in in the past development committee meeting the other day is is the bottom line uh, for me is we're hitting stuff with airplanes. We're hitting wires, specifically with airplanes and helicopters. If you took, if you simply took the helicopter fatalities from wire strikes out of the statistics this year, we would be significantly down. I believe there was four fatal helicopter wire strikes this year. And we need to, to look at that and go, well, what's happening? One of the things that's happening is we're putting... Um, Part of it is we're having some inexperienced pilots, helicopters in particular, working in some of the most dangerous environments that our industry has. Just by nature, if you're going to fly a helicopter in our industry, you're going to be in those environments. Um, So you can look at some of those and say, yeah, he's pretty inexperienced. You can maybe put some pieces together, but then you have also very experienced people doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. We need to get better at wires. We need to get better at not hitting wires across the industry. And I don't have an answer for that. We're looking at maybe some different things for training. A lot of times we don't see them. I mean, anybody that's done this long enough has has had a wire that they didn't see. And I've had several, and I've been fortunate not to hit the ones that, uh, you know, I caught them at the last minute or something. Something happened, and I was able to find it out. So we need to find a better way to do reconnaissance. I think there are tools coming that might be available. I know this sounds far-fetched, but maybe we have a, a remote sensing type of situation where if a farmer is using a drone on his field, maybe we can get the wire information from that drone. Or maybe we'll have our own. I don't know what that looks like. But the bottom line is we need to to be, keep moving that bar towards more professionalism. Mm-hmm. Um some other, you know, looking at this year's, we had we had a stall spin this year, and uh, I'll address that by just saying we need to move the airplanes away from the edge of the envelope. 
We should not be flying in a place where we can get ourselves into that. And if we are, we've made a lot of mistakes to get to that point. And, and as we all know, there aren't many there aren't many favors that you get when you're flying low level. You you don't you stall a you stall an airplane at two thousand feet, you've got quite a bit of time. You stall an airplane you stall an air tractor or thrush at at under 200 feet it's not going to go well and so we need to find ways to not put us or put ourselves into the positions uh, where that can happen um, I think your audience being a lot of guys new to the industry need to understand that um, what we do needs to not be cool it needs to not be fast it needs to be a professional application job mm-hmm. And turning fast is not part of a professional application job. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Jim, you probably have some comments on this as well. I do. I absolutely do. So CFIT, Controlled Flight into Terrain, is always our number one. Mm-hmm. Just like Matt said, we've got to quit hitting things, particularly wires. Um, last year, so, so that's, that's the big column that we need to move. I think that we're hopefully very soon going to have some some very specific training content uh, just on wires. We're looking at some of the stuff the helicopter folks are doing over at HAI, helicopters, applica- or not, not HAI, but what is that big helicopter? Yeah, that's HAI. Okay, HAI. Um, we're looking at some of the training material they have. They've got a two-day course on not hitting wires. It's expensive to take that course. Yeah, We're going to try to put something together Loosely based off of that, loosely based off of the CFIT modules that, that Matt and Matt's uh, subcommittee uh, wrote and come up with something that's specific to Part 137 that really finally addresses this issue. Besides just saying, don't hit wires, let's come up with some training content on how to find those wires before we hit them. Right. Um, there's low-hanging fruit all over the place. Last year, we would have tied the record all-time low number of fatalities if we just didn't stall spin. Just removing the stall spin portion out of our accident fatality, our fatal accidents last year, would have put us at a a tie for the record low number of accidents. There's no excuse for us to stall spin these airplanes. Mm -hmm. Everybody here, we're we're talking about a group of of some of the greatest stick-and-rudder pilots on the planet. And uh, yet we go out and we stall spin them. Don't worry about trying to keep up to the other guy. Your airplane might be dirty. It might not fly as well. Just go fly the airplane within its envelope. Just like Matt said, it's not about doing a pretty turn. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started, I was, I was doing textbook 45-degree turns, and I actually had farmers comment on how good those turns looked. Then I went through a period of time where I was trying to do everything in a 15-second turn or less, and I never once had a, a farmer tell me how good that turn looked. And, it, you know, as I mentored a young pilot into the business, I realized that that's not a professional method of turning an airplane around. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have to stop flying in the fog. This year, I don't think we had this. In 2021, we did not have uh, a fatal IIMC inadvertent uh, instrument incursion. Um, but last year, we had, I think, Two or three. So, you know, we're, we're flying day VFR airplanes typically. Don't fly into the clouds. Mm-hmm. You know, if we, can, if we could do those, those three things, we'd be at zero accidents pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, and, Jim, I'd, I'd just like to 
I think they're all the same process to not do those things. It's we got to fly more professional. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about earlier about when you sit in the airplane, some of the conversations we have in board meetings go through your head and you fly differently because of that, because it just happened. If we do a little bit of recurrent training, I'm not talking hours and hours. If we do a BFR every two years, and every spring before we get the airplane out, we go spend some time, whether it be online content or after a pass program or whatever, do some training. And that doesn't have to mean with an instructor. It can mean anything that gets your brain thinking in ways about safety. We're going to fly these airplanes different, and it's about decision-making. Flying in fog that accident happens on takeoff. Mm. Whether you, you know, and we, we, Jim and I all know, we, we know people that have died in fog incidents. And that accident started when he rolled down the runway. Mm. Actually, before that. Yeah. And, and we need to start making those decisions that way. Wire strikes, if it's because you didn't see it, it's you didn't do enough recon. If you don't know it's there, you didn't do a good enough job of recon. If, if it's because you forgot about it, it's because you're not keeping your eye and you're not it's professional to stay focused and we just can't lapse in professionalism um i will say as well as we need to stick to mission oriented flying our our job as an egg pilot is to take off with a load go apply it professionally and go back and land not buzz a farmer not buzz your neighbor not not wave to the kids that is not the mission of our our operation we need to get to a a mission-oriented flight Um, i can tell you that there are a fair amount of accidents that have happened with people just screwing around Mm -hmm. and they they not only look bad but they're horrible i mean i mean what a dumb reason to have an accident Mm -hmm. Um, and with people watching you Um, so i i think there's that is we need to get to that professionalism and I just want to say this. I think one way, an easy way people can do this, and you can do this whether you're an operator, a hired pilot, whether you work for an operation and do this, you can do a little bit of a, and I promoted this this summer, is a little briefing every day, two minutes, 30 seconds, where you just sit down and think about safety and how you're going to carry out the day. And if your business that you fly for doesn't do it, you can do it on your own. You can do it. You can sit in the airplane before you take off. You can do it as a part of a pre-flight. Just for two minutes every day, think about safety. If, if, if you're in operation, get everybody together and say, hey, guys, this is what's going to happen today. Let's make sure we be safe, make good decisions. we got weather coming, so let's start looking at things that, before that happens so we, we don't get backed into a corner. Just two minutes, I think, would make – I think we would move that number significantly if everybody took two minutes every day of the summer or of their, of their season and thought about safety. Mm-hmm. One thing we talked about on our podcast yesterday was even just even just personal minimums. You know, I feel I feel like when we get, um, like I said earlier, it was my first time on the road this year, and I was at an operation where we had we had fourteen airplanes taken off in the morning. And as everybody knows, this year's corn run was um, really hindered by bad weather a lot. You know, lots of fogs, low clouds, um, rain, and things like that. And uh, Emily Daniels brought it up at speed mentoring the other day that that we need to look out for ourselves, set personal minimums, things like that, because it was so funny. All it took was one old pilot to go run out to his 502 and 13 other pilots walked out to theirs, which, and I, and I'm just, I'm guilty of this. Okay. I walked out with the other 13 pilots 
and we all have Andy. Yeah, <laughs> been there, done that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, but it, it it just when she said that, I'm like, and and all I could think was because none of us have our own personal minimums. We're just we're going to base our decision off what one guy thinks. We're not going to take a look at it as how we feel comfortable. And especially as a young pilot, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that my boss does that I'm not capable of doing right now, and I shouldn't try and pursue them. And and I really sorry, I kind of went off track right there, but no, that was I a really that, good point. You're right that, on track. That's an important point, and I will say that um, a lot of times, as you're new in the industry, you know, you don't know what you don't know. That statement is really true. Get help, and maybe it's your boss, maybe it's not. If your boss isn't very helpful, which a lot of operators are are not able to for whatever reason, don't have time, don't have the the, the 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 want or whatever, get somebody else. Say, hey, talk to – that's why I think the network of people is so important. Talk to somebody else. Say, hey, you know, we talked about personal minimums. I have no idea where to set mine. Mm-hmm. What do I do? What do you do? Talk to – I mean, we we this year in the past program, we talked about personal minimums, and we bounce that around. Uh, the past presenters, we do that as – I mean – these are some of the most more experienced pilots that I've been around my entire life. And they're asking me, so well, what, what do you do? I'm like, oh, yeah, I, this is, and, uh, you know, have those personal minimums and then have trigger points while you're flying that if it continues to deteriorate or, or if A happens, then I do B, mm-hmm. you know. So, so have those and talk to as many people as you can to set those up for yourself. I know that a lot of your, your podcast, uh, it's, you've said is a lot, has a lot to do with mentoring, has a lot to do with uh, uh, newer people getting into the industry. And I probably have used the word mentor more, more times in the last 12 months than I've used in my entire life combined prior to that. Mm-hmm. I really believe that that's the key to success in this business now. Yep. I believe both for the mentor and the mentee. And what I mean by that is, is when I mentored a pilot – it really made me step back and take a look at what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It made me a safer pilot to mentor a young pilot. When I say a young pilot, I mean a new pilot in the industry. Um, by doing that mentoring, by, by talking about a minimum, now suddenly I've established my own minimum. By talking about a safe, a safe turn, egg turn, now I'm making a little safer egg turn. You know, the, it helps both parties, and I really think that a young person starting out, even if they work for an operator that doesn't do much mentoring or really any mentoring, ask for it. Mm-hmm. Most people are proud to share their information yeah. if they're asked for it. Yep. And the biggest thing I'd say for any new person getting into this business, I know it's a little off topic for where we're at, but oh, the continue. biggest thing that I would say is don't be afraid to say I'm not comfortable doing that. Absolutely, yeah. No, I'd, I'm... Glad we're talking about this. Like I told you guys before, I kind of started out at an operation where I really wasn't looked over. But I mean, it was it was networking, just like you said, knowing pilots, other pilots in my area outside of our operation. It was it was past programs. Seriously, I, I mean, I my first year we operated off a really short runway, and I flew a Cessna, and I, I took off one morning, and I was not going to make the end of the runway, and I had to dump a load. But the only reason that I actually had practiced dumping a load while I was getting familiarized with my Cessna was because at a past presentation, I listened to Fran talk about dumping loads on takeoff. I mean, so I just want to say that I, I, like I said, I appreciate what you guys have done because even, even that, those little tidbits of information, the networking that was done at conventions 
got me through a very unsafe period of time in my own career. So, and that that we've all been there. I mean, Jim, trust me, Jim and I have all both been through those experiences where something somebody said saved our butts. And and uh, I think you know, mentoring is important for for uh, an inexperienced pilot, but it kind of changes that mentoring turns into the like you say the networking i use people all the time i mean i'm calling people all the time sometimes it's just to to blow off some steam sometimes like like i had uh, last two years ago i had a customer ask me to do some dry work of something i'd never done in my life didn't know even where to start so instead of spending six hours beating my head against the wall trying to figure out a, a gate setting i made one phone call and in two minutes had a gate setting and and that so the mentoring kept me safe early and it still keeps me safe and now that network keeps me you know it it it's definitely helped me a lot mm-hmm. yeah one thing i wanted to to really drive home on a point you made jim was you know what you said about being a mentor is exactly what they tell us when we sit down in our cfi class is that through this experience of learning how to become an instructor, you are going to reinforce everything that you do. I think I think it's really crucial that I hope that young people getting in the industry consider getting their CFI. That hopefully one day they they take over those mentorship roles. Because even I haven't finished my CFI yet, but but we've got a young guy starting with us, and I just think about I've thought about the exact same thing. I'm, I feel like I'm going through that process right now. Of, I, I know one thing that Matt said. You, you know, you're talking about some operators. Um, maybe not being um, equipped properly to do instruction. It is difficult to properly communicate information. I think you guys both, to me so far, seem like you're very good at that. But I'd, I'm learning how to speak properly, like I said, even with this podcast. But, I mean, it, it is difficult to, to sit down and think about how you actually do something, how you communicate it properly that, so that somebody who is inexperienced is going to understand that and execute it properly. So, well, I will add that I think there's a lot of operators in our our industry, operators and pilots, that are really good at what they do. Very, very good at what they do. They're very, very horrible at communicating and teaching. Mm-hmm. And that's no no fault of them. That's that's just. Uh, I mean, there are people that are good teachers, and there are people that aren't. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. That it's okay as long as everybody knows what they're dealing with. If I know I'm not a good teacher, I'm going to have Jim teach you. Mm-hmm. Because Jim's a good teacher, or, or however that might work. Well, and Andy, I will say this. I'd like to, you know, you've said thank you for for the time that Matt and I volunteer, but I'd like to thank you for what you're doing. Think about what you've just done. I just know of of the interview, the interview that you did yesterday, and the interview you did today. You've probably tapped into somewhere near sixty thousand hours of experience mm-hmm. in two days. And you've shared that with other people. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So you've probably heard things from uh, Michael Rutledge, Matt Peed, George Parker, myself, uh, you know, Matt Hovdenis. You've, you've heard things that you might take out of this. Um, your listeners hopefully will, will get something that, that helps them as well. Um, you've shared a tremendous amount of information, you know, through this for people that it, and it's not bad for for people with a lot of time to hear it again. No. There's a lot of things that 
we maybe have over time developed a bad habit and we've gotten away with it and we've started to paint ourselves back into a, a, a bad corner. Mm-hmm. And uh, hearing it again from from these other operators or, or hearing it from young pilots, mm-hmm. frankly, is it's it's basically constant recurrency. Mm-hmm. And I think you've done a fantastic job. Appreciate it. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, my, my experience that I had, I just, if, if we can make information like this available to to people who want to seek it, they want to learn. If they if they need an avenue to to get some of this information without having to build all the contacts and doing that, not that they shouldn't do it, but it should be available to them anyways. So, well, I think um, is there anything else you guys would like to talk about before we wrap up? There's one thing I'd like to say, and and if there are young pilots that are looking for mentors, um, whether they need a, and this isn't looking for a job, but looking for people to help them with things, um, call. Um, the NAAA asked for Scott Brett Howard. He's the director of safety and education. And we have a list of experienced ag pilots that have agreed to have their names and contacts shared. And we're willing to, if, if you want help setting minimums, we have people that will help you do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want help talking about something that happened, we have people that will help you do that. And, and like we said earlier, um, maybe use that as a tool to get involved show up at the meetings and uh at, at the end of the day we just want everybody home safe and and to do a great job and have fun doing it mm-hmm. awesome any closing thoughts from you jim no i think matt just really hit it uh don't be afraid to ask for help there's a lot of people out there that are more than happy to help um and strive for a more professional application mm-hmm. awesome well like i said before i really appreciate what you guys have done um in your involvement in the all the organizations that help AG Aviation continue on to prosper, and I appreciate you guys taking your time to sit down and talk with us. So there's there's going to be a lot of a lot of folks who benefit from everything you guys just shared here today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Yep. All right, that's it for the AG Aviator podcast. We will see you guys next time.